Hello and welcome to episode five of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. This is Kyle Fagel, and I'm excited today because we will continue our study in mere Christianity as Winston Atnip leads us on book two, What Christians Believe. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, so, like he said, we're going to be talking about what Christians believe this morning. So that I guess maybe some of you already know what Christians believe. Maybe you know some of you know some of what Christians believe. Maybe some of you know nothing about what Christians believe, which would be this is a great intro class. So welcome, uh, buckle up, because it's pretty insane. Um, so the the purpose of mere Christianity is that uh, Lewis is presenting this kind of a, a layman's approach to uh, why we do the crazy things that we do that from an outside perspective would seem why are you guys like getting together in a building and taking little glasses of juice and eating little pieces of bread that's kind of weird why would you do that so he goes from the ground up and so last week we talked about kind of the philosophical underpinnings of why we believe that there is a God and that there's just, this is not just a senseless, empty universe. Uh, this week we're going to get a little bit more specific and talk about what kind of God and what that God demands and how we react to what that God demands. So we'll just get into it here. So we claim that a good God made the world. And if you remember from Kyle's lesson, uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist for part of his life. And so a lot of his views are informed by, or his arguments are informed by the arguments that convinced him that there was a God. So his thought process was we're moving in this kind of direction. If a good God made the world, how could it have gone wrong, right? And we've talked about this in the past. Um, and he says that no matter how many complicated explanations that Christians gave him, uh, wasn't it much simpler to believe that this all happened by chance and that there is no God? Well, the short answer is no. Um, if, our argument, if, your, if our argument against God is that the universe is cruel and unjust, then, then, we, then we have a problem. We've created a problem for ourselves when we say God is, God is unjust. That statement is untenable. Because where do we get our idea about, about justice? How do we call God unjust? Right, so if the whole show, he says, was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, Lewis, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction to it? So if we're supposed to be inside of this crazy system, how can we tell that the system is crazy? How can we look at God and say, you are unjust, without comparing him to a standard of justice? And in that case, what is the standard of justice? Me! Yeah, is basically what most people think, even though they don't admit it to themselves. Um, so if we admit, then, that our sense of justice is not objective. Because if we, admit our, if we, if we think that our system of justice is objective, then we believe in a God, right? So if we admit that it's not objective, uh, then we have to say either it's personal, or culturally determined. Uh, if it's personal, well, then it's my justice to murder you and take your stuff. 
you see we run into problems there. Uh, if it's culturally determined, we say, well, generally people as a whole will figure, fi well, Nazi Germany, okay, we're, we're not even going to, yeah. Cultures also make mistakes as a whole. Entire societies come up with very obviously perverted systems of right and wrong. So that's out the window. So, so we've, we've run up against a wall here. Our condemnation of God requires us to believe that there is a standard out there to which he is not measuring up. But the point of our whole argument was that there was no such thing as the standard. Right? Put another way, we're trying to argue that the universe is senseless, but doing so requires us to believe that our conception of the way things should be is actually full of sense. Right? It can't be done. If we argue the universe is senseless, then our opinions are also senseless. And then why are we even arguing? The answer is because not all opinions are senseless. The implication of this is that there are really two intellectually consistent ways of behaving in the world. That doesn't mean that people behave in these two ways. They're just the only intellectually consistent ones. Uh, the ones where you can think from the beginning of, from the beginning of your philosophical underpinnings to the way that you act consistently. Uh, almost no one thinks in these two ways. Uh, the first way is to live in accordance with the will of God. The second is to live as laid out by this guy named Nietzsche. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. He was a nihilist. Um, basically, his idea is that nothing has any meaning. Might makes right. So do whatever you can get away with to get as much pleasure for yourself as you possibly can. And if you get tired of being alive, jump off a cliff because nothing has ever mattered or ever will matter. That's the other logically consistent way to live your life if you're not a Christian. Obviously, that mentality has the fingerprints of Satan all over it. That's what we're here to fight. So buckle up. Uh, as, an, as a side note, I used to think that like most people who, most smart people, um, tried to really think through their thoughts, but then I realized that I hadn't thought through any of my thoughts, and uh, so I don't know why I was expecting everyone else to either. What I've discovered that a lot of the, uh, the well-meaning but godless people out there believe is that they, they believe that there is right and wrong uh, practically, and they act like there's right and wrong, um, but philosophically they believe there's no such thing as right and wrong. And when you really try and kind of hem them in to figure out where the disconnect is, they just end up saying, I don't care where the disconnect is. And that's the issue. It's, it's the, the conflict between their God-given conscience and their wicked philosophies and their, their wicked impulses. <clears throat> so when we look at this, we see that atheism this belief that there is no God, it's actually, it's actually too easy, right? It's a surrender. We say, eh, there's no real hookup here between what we believe and how we act, and we don't care, because we just want to, you know, do whatever we want. I, I just want to get money and, you know, have sex with people I'm not married to and just kind of live my life in the way that I want to live it. Uh, and, and so that's, I mean, that's the reason behind every intellectual atheist is sin, is a sin that, that, that we don't want to give up. That's, that's just, it's, it's the truth. So we see it's, it's, it's actually just too easy. It's a cop-out. 
uh, in terms of religions, and as, as another aside, atheism is absolutely a religion. It's a denomination of the religion of selfism, which is the biggest religion that's ever been and ever will be. It's the, it's the religion to which most people belong. Uh, another denomination of selfism is the prosperity gospel that's taught by people like Joel Osteen and uh, Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn and the rest of that type of person. Uh, so that's, that's one denomination. Atheism is, an, is another denomination. Um, but in, even, in terms of, even in terms of selfism, atheism is like the flat earth theory of religions, right? It's, it's just too simple. It's the belief that nothing exists that I can't observe. Right? It's like, it's like a toddler who thinks he's hidden because he covers his face with his hands. It makes that much sense. The truth is that, uh, that simple things just don't work in the real world. The real world is complicated. It may seem relatively simple on the surface, but when you start to dig down, it gets complex and unknowable and completely defies what we think we know of as logic. Logic, what we think of that is. Um, I don't know if any of you are engineers. I'm an engineer. Uh, so, or at least that's what my degree is. Um, when I was taking physics uh, in high school, and freshman year, things seemed to be pretty simple. You like multiplied two things, and then there was like another thing, and that other thing was your answer. Uh, but when you really start digging down in physics, and this is farther than I've been educated, uh, you get down to like, when you look on the really small scale and also the really large scale, things start going really strange. And they defy what we think of as logic. Like on the very small scale, you have quantum mechanics, which is like uh, there's a particle can be in two places at the same time, which makes it, that, that, that's not logical, right? As we define it. And on the large scale, things are not behaving, gravity's not behaving the way that we think they are, the, we, the way that we think it should be. So scientists are just like, eh, it doesn't work and we don't know why. We'll just say the reason it doesn't work is something that we call dark matter that we can't see and can't interact with and doesn't affect anything except it's kind of weird. So uh, reality is not linear. And reality does not conform well to just kind of giving up and saying, eh, we don't know why it works and we don't care. That's not going to get you a true answer. So if the universe that we find ourselves in is like that, why would we expect the way the universe got here to be any different? Right, and this is not just a condemnation of the simplifications caused by atheism. Um, but also, it's a condemnation of what Lewis calls Christianity in water, which is like the Oprahized Christianity that um, denies the just nature of God and, uh, and denies the fallen nature of the world, and is basically, uh, because of that, really uncomfortable reading the majority of the Bible. So that's people like um, Rob Bell is a famous teacher who, who's a, a big advocate of Christianity in water. He's, a, uh, he's kind of part of Oprah's spiritual council. And uh, anyway, uh, but that's, that's also a large majority of at least this country that we live in and, and a lot of Western Europe as well. Um, and we obviously cannot be a part of that. That's not real Christianity, right? It's too easy. It's too simple. And it denies a lot of the things that make this thing that we're doing all here together, following Christ, worth it or make it make, it make sense at all make it conform to reality, which is what we're trying to do. One of the hard parts about Christianity 
is our belief that though God is all-powerful, there is some sense in which the universe is in the midst of a great civil war. Okay? On one side, it is led by a dark power, a mighty evil spirit, whom the Bible calls Satan, which means the adversary. And we believe that we are living in a part of the universe that is controlled by that enemy. In a sense, we are living in enemy-occupied territory. Recall uh, Ephesians 6.12, Paul is talking and he says, uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So uh, there's something called dualism, which is the belief that, uh, that God and Satan are two equally opposed forces. We may have talked about this in our false teachers segment. Did we talk about this? Um, Two, uh, two, equally, two equal forces, and it's anybody's guess who's going to win. That's not what we believe, right? This is, not a, uh, this is not a war between two opposing powers. It's a rebellion, and God will crush Satan. But we need to, we need to remember that, that real Christianity, as opposed to Christianity and water, gets most, much closer to dualism than maybe a lot of people think about. There is an act of power there is a great evil spirit who we are in battle against. The Bible is very clear about that, and we can't avoid it. <clears throat> so Lewis introduces a counter-argument here, um, which I think is still applicable to our time, uh, maybe even more so than his time. He presents, uh, he says, Do we really mean at this late date to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hooves, horns, and all? So the devil is the devil's outdated, right? Um, and I, I think, you know, most Christian kind of aphorisms are mostly like hooey, but one of them that's good is the greatest de- trick that ever, ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. That's extremely true, I think, especially for our time. And why, why should the devil try and scare people, you know, by existing? He has porn. Why would he need it? Why would he need to have, like, be scaring people with demon possession and stuff and, and marching around with his pitchfork? So our answer has to be, uh, yes, well, we're not particular about the hooves and horns, but other than that, yes, we do. We do mean to reintroduce the devil. Uh, this is war. And we have to be insistent on recognizing and naming our enemy for who he is. He is the deceiver. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to be a part of his campaign of sabotage. Every time we meet together in this building or in other buildings, we are meeting with members of the resistance. And every time we read the Bible, we are listening to the secret broadcast of the truth that is being sent to us here surrounded by a kingdom of lies. So what he, he uses a lot, Lewis uses a lot of war metaphors because this is he published this uh, pretty soon after the conclusion of World War II. Um, so he likened reading the Bible to listening to what he calls the wireless, listening to the, the wireless broadcasts from England if you were in occupied France at the time. So that's kind of how we can think of, we have to lean on each other. Now, of course, the, the question is that if this God that we believe in is all powerful, how has such a state of affairs come to pass? If the rebellion is in accordance with his will, then that's a pretty strange God, right? Why would he will a rebellion to happen? 
But if the rebellion is not in accordance with his will, then how can he be all-powerful if the rebellion does indeed exist? <clears throat> and Lewis, I think, is his, his, the best thing about him is he is a master of metaphor. And he comes up with a really great one here. He says, it may be quite sensible for the mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy, but on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. Right? So there's kind of a, a duality of will here. That's one of these things that when we look at it, it seems like two things are in the same place at the same time, or, or one thing's in two places at the same time. How can that be possible? Uh, well, it's possible because God invented logic, so he can do whatever he wants. Uh, but <clears throat> God has decided for his own reasons that real, true, free will is worth the current state of the world. Our rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion is the cost of that free will. The long, terrible history of the world, wars, murders, disease, death, is all the result of men making the wrong choices about what will fulfill us, right? So Lewis describes us as a machine. This is another one of his famous metaphors. He describes us as, as a machine designed by God to run on one fuel. Just like cars are run on gasoline and don't run properly on anything else, people run on God. And without him, come to total and complete ruin every single time. It's why civilization is just a history of disaster after disaster. You know, conquest, disease, uh, death and destruction for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, you know, it's like we're saying, oh, no, that, uh, what do you expect, you know, from, from trying to run your car on milk? Like, if you're writing the history of running your car on different things other than gasoline, it would just be a history of disaster, right? So, okay, milk didn't work, let's try it on orange juice this time. All right, what about toothpaste, you know? And, and you'll, you'll never get anywhere, which is why we've never gotten anywhere. We're still murdering each other. We'll never get to utopia. We'll never enter this perfect realm because we will never use gasoline. We refuse because we think we know what's right. It never occurs to anyone to try gasoline. So what does God do in response to this? Right? The, the people who, or he, he makes these machines and they're supposed to run on him and they're like, nah, I'd rather not do what I'm supposed to do. Um, and, and so they've condemned themselves, uh, we've condemned ourselves by our actions to uh, an eternity of death and destruction, right? So what does God do in response? He sends a man. The man claims he is God. This guy, he forgives sins and talks as if he has always existed. And this is where Lewis brings in his famous uh, Lord Liar Lunatic argument. The idea is that based on the things that Jesus says in the Bible, he can be one of three things. He is either the creator of the universe, a madman on the level with someone who thinks he's a poached egg. I think you introduced that quote earlier, which is awesome. Or a fiend and deceiver straight from hell. If the last two, the poached egg and the deceiver, uh, strike us as unlikely, then we must be stuck with the first one. 
The deal is, the one thing he can't be is just a good man, right? So there's this Matama or Matama Gandhi quote, I don't know how to say his first name, Gandhi quote, where he says, I like your Jesus, I do not like your Christians. Uh, and that is used as a kind of a bludgeon by Christians internally and also um, spiritual but not religious people externally. Sorry if any of you are like that, I didn't mean to use a goofy tone there, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's used as kind of a, a club, right, to say, look, Gandhi was great and, and then he's right. I like Jesus and I like the things that Jesus said, but I don't like how Christians are acting. Well, I mean, on the one hand, Christians are hypocrites. This is a place for the sick, right? Not for the healthy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Gandhi didn't read his Bible. Uh, he would not have liked Jesus if he read all the stuff Jesus said, like, I don't come to bring peace but a sword. And also, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That statement alone, even without all of Jesus' other claims to divinity, that statement alone means Jesus cannot be a good man. He must be God. And if he is, if we believe that the Bible is true and he is God, then that has massive implications for how we live our lives. So if we do believe he is God, then we're left with a question, what is the point of all? What is the point of it all? What did he come here to do? Uh, the short answer is that he came to suffer and die. It had to be him because a perfect sacrifice is the only thing that can save us. And no one who needs the perfect sacrifice is in the position to give it. Because the only reason he needed the sacrifice to begin with is because he's imperfect, right? So the imperfect person needs a perfect sacrifice, can't give it himself. Now to the crux of the matter, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Right? Christ was killed for us, his death has washed away our sins, and by dying, he has disabled death itself. We believe, Lewis says, that the death of Christ is that point in history when something absolutely unimaginable shines through from outside our world into our world. The inconceivable, the uncreated, the thing from beyond nature striking down into nature like lightning. That is this event, the birth and death of Christ. We may not be able to fully understand it. And he, he talks a little bit about how different well-meaning Christians can have different interpretations of how the exact mechanics of how Jesus saved us by his death. But the, the long and short of it is that do we have to understand it for it to be useful to us? fully understand it? Do we have to understand how food nourishes us to survive by eating? No. Do we have to understand how breathing works before it keeps us alive? No. We just have to believe and know that it happens. It just has to happen. Just like the death of Christ happens. And just like our belief in it happens. So the willing submission and dying to self that has to take place here on our end is not, as an aside kind of here, this is not what God expects of you before he lets you back in. You know, It's not like uh, God saying, now, now, this is what you have to do. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to keep you out of my kingdom. 
this is what going back to him looks like. Right? So asking God to let you back in without following the steps that he has laid out is like trying to go back without going back. So repentance is what going back looks like. God won't let us, it's not that God won't let us back in without us repenting and following the steps that he has laid out. It's that that's what going back in looks like. That's the method. That's how it's done. So uh, the practical conclusion is his last chapter within the book here. He comes down to uh, three, three core actions that we do based on all of this. Uh, baptism, belief, and the communion of the saints. It doesn't matter what denomination you're in, what particular flavor of this pursuit of Christ that you're a part of, these three things are common to true Christians. Baptism, belief, communion. And we don't have time to go into all of why those mean everything, and uh, I would love to talk to you about that stuff afterwards if you don't you don't know what those are, because um, they rock. <laughs> uh, but it's important, and that's, that's what the application is of all of this stuff. That's what the Bible says to do, um, to be, that's the steps we take to be a part of the kingdom, right? So uh, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. We turn from our sins as part of that belief and the faith in that. We're baptized into the death of Christ. We die with him. We are raised with him. And then we meet with the saints and share the body of blood in Christ with them, which we're going to do later today, unless you've already done it this morning. And uh, so the last thing. Some may ask why God delays. I mean, I ask that. So it's not some may ask. Everybody asks. We'll go with that. Everybody asks why God delays, either out loud or to themselves. I'm asking it right now. Why has God not come back yet? Why are we in this kind of middle, this middle ground? Right, because we said that Jesus disabled death. And yet, unless Christ comes back within the next uh, one to like 60-ish years, I probably will die. Not probably, definitely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I thought, but I thought we just said Jesus disabled death. It's the already but not yet. This is another one of those areas where logic gets defied by the God who created logic. Again, he does whatever he wants, so uh, we don't have a lot of room to question him. But we can, I think we can get a little bit, we can shine a little bit of light on this issue. Um, is he not powerful enough to come back? Uh, well, no, he is powerful enough. Um, Let's kind of dig in here a little bit. In Romans 11, Paul's discussing the nature of the relationship between the mercy extended to Israel and the mercy extended to the Gentiles. And uh, he's talking, starting in verse 29, and uh, he's been talking about that. And then he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, uh, they also may now receive mercy. So he's talking about the, the disobedience of the Jews has made the Gentiles able to receive mercy and the disobedience of the Gentiles has made the Jews 
able to receive mercy. Uh, and then the, here's the key in verse 32. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So what does that mean? He may have mercy on all. God wills to have mercy on all people. Um, some of the reformed movement uh, would deny that God has or ever will extend mercy to the unelect. Uh, but the only problem with that is actually what the Bible literally says right here. Uh, so, so what does it mean then that God has decided to have mercy on all? Does it mean that everyone will ultimately be reconciled to God? That's a little bit of that Christianity and water belief there. Uh, well, no, the context of this passage and the entire Bible makes extremely clear that that is not the case. All right, the path to destruction is wide. Not everyone will be reconciled. How then has God extended mercy to all? Uh, about 10 years ago, there was an internet challenge that made the rounds called the Blasphemy Project. It was put together by uh, celebrity atheists. So, you know, the, the Richard Dawkins types who it's like cool to be an atheist. Cool to make fun of Christians and stuff because they're stupid, right? Um, it was put together by these celebrity atheists and encouraged people to upload videos of themselves speaking obscene blasphemies against God. Uh, that they could, the, the, like the most obscene ones you can think of, in order to demonstrate their commitment to disbelief. Thousands of people participated, right? So, you know, talking about all that evil stuff Jesus did, oh, God is a child abuser, oh, this, this kind of stuff. Um, God is a murderer. Uh, and using um, that, that verse, oh, I don't know the reference to it. Uh, the only unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or denial of the Holy Spirit, which is a fundamental misinterpretation of that verse. We can talk about that later, too. Anyway, um, they would say, uh, saying things like, I deny the Holy Spirit, as if this puts me beyond the mercy of God, right? Here's the thing. Um, do you think that some of those people uh, who, have, who uttered, you know, evil blasphemy against God. You think that some of those people, since they made those videos, have had like a really good steak? Or experienced like a super relaxing day at the beach? Or fallen in love? Or participated in any of the blessings that God has put on earth for us to enjoy? What is that but mercy? So we can say that God has had mercy on all. The thing about this type of mercy is that it is not eternal, and it has a time limit. God's delay, the difference between the lightning and the thunder, the reason for the already but not yet, I believe is mercy. But it will not last forever. And Lewis says this, and then I'll finish up here. I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the point of declaring you are on his side then 
when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it has never entered your, into your head to conceive comes crashing through comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. And I don't mean to preach fire and brimstone here, but the fire is real. There is no use in saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the, it will be the time to discover which side we really have chosen. Um, so that's his conclusion uh, to, this, to this book here. I would add that now is the time for choosing. Right now. As soon as possible. Every breath is mercy. Every heartbeat is mercy. We don't deserve a single one. Praise God. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can meet together. Thank you that, uh, that you gave uh, C.S. Lewis, the, uh, the wisdom and the insight to, uh, to write this, and thank you how, how this book has helped so many people over the years. Uh, please give us understanding and insight, and, and not, not, uh, not to magnify just a man, but to, but to look through him, which was what he was trying to do, and to magnify you through his words, um, and to, to examine scripture deeply. Thank you so much for Jesus, for his death, for his selflessness. God, we don't deserve it. Thank you so much. In his awesome name, amen. So I want to thank Winston Atnett for a great class today discussing Mere Christianity Book 2 and for you for listening. And so if you've been listening to these and getting something out of it, we'd love uh, for you to reach out to us. You can reach out to me on Facebook. Kind of let me know what you like and what you don't like. Uh, you can also join our Facebook group at Highland Bridge Builders. Uh, just on Facebook there's a group and there's also a page that you can follow. We'll continue to do these as long as there's interest in it. And uh, if you ever find yourself in the Memphis area on a Sunday, we meet at 10 a.m. at 400 North Houston Levy. Uh, it's in Cordova at Highland Church of Christ. We would love to have you join us. Next week we'll have Juwan Davis, who always does an excellent job, and he'll be getting into book three of Mere Christianity. Until then, have a great week, and we'll see you next time.